0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Mortaza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to have uh, Dr. Anthony Bell with me. Uh, Anthony Bell is a professor of medieval histories, medieval studies at Berk University of London. He has published widely on medieval literature, culture, and religion. In particular, his work has explored. Uh, relations between Christian and Jews in medieval England, and more recently, the culture of medieval pilgrimage. And today he's here to talk to us about a wonderful book uh, he wrote called A Marjorie Camp, A Mixed Life. Uh, Anthony, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Before we start, can you tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in medieval history, and how you became a professor of medieval history as well? <laughs>
1: sure so i've been I've been thinking about the middle ages um for a very long time um, and I specialized in medieval studies during my first degree and in my m um, a I actually first read the book of Marjorie Kemp when I was an undergraduate um, and that was um something like thirty years ago um and um i was captivated by the combination of familiarity of some of the language some of the settings some of the narratives and the utter strangeness and um alienation from, from other parts of it to do with religion or to do with um, kind of gender and society, economics, that kind of thing. So um, really I have always felt there's this, um, I've just got a huge number of questions about the Middle Ages and I've kept on thinking about those questions now for, for many, many years.
0: Um, so tell us about this book, how this book came about, Marjorie Kemp, but maybe before that, uh, maybe some of the listeners don't know who Marjorie Kemp was. So maybe briefly you can tell us in a couple of minutes, because we'll be talking a lot about her. Um, but briefly tell us who she was and then why you decided to write this book. I'm particularly interested in this topic because she wrote, uh, uh what, what we now call an autobiography. She wrote her own biography. Um... But you also wrote uh, 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 It's not it, this book, like Marjorie Kemp and Mixed Life, which is sort of a biography of uh, of Marjorie Kemp as well.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a biography of an autobiography. <laughs> yeah. The so Marjorie Kemp, if um, listeners have never heard of her or don't know much about her, she's often called the the author of the first autobiography in the English language. Um, I think that's a slightly simple way of thinking about it, but she wrote or composed a book called the book of Marjorie Kemp in the 1430s, which was the story of her life. She was born um, in the 1370s um, and probably around 1373 in the East of England. And she died around 1439 and she Lived a very interesting life, which can be divided into two separate sections. One is the life, her life up to about the age of 40, where she was a quite well-off urban um, uh, merchant's wife. She had a career in brewing and in milling. Um, She had 14 children She was from the kind of what we'd call the merchant class, the upper class of a medieval city. And she seems to have had a reasonably conventional, comfortable life. And then she had a kind of religious conversion. Um, She started receiving mystical communications, having conversations with God and with the saints and with the Virgin Mary. And she undertook several very significant journeys around the world, which we will talk about um, in due course. And she received what she called the gift of tears, which was very loud episodes of crying um, and weeping, which became one of her signature devotional styles. And um, she, um, yeah, she wrote, had her book written down when she was in medieval terms, quite an elderly person in her 60s Um, and um, the book has become in the 20th and 21st centuries one of the cornerstones of medieval women's writing um, medieval religious writing um, how we understand 15th century England Um, it's become an incredibly useful document for understanding that environment it's important to say at the outset that the book of marjorie kemp is unique it's it survives in one manuscript but it's also it opens a window onto medieval england like no other source Um, the amount of detail the specificity of that detail the richness of that detail and the fact that that is written by a um upper-middle-class woman op- offers us a set of perspectives which really um, are, are, are very unusual. So um, it's a fascinating document. The Book of Marjorie Kemp, when I first read it, when I was an undergraduate, it was not well known. It was thought of as very much a marginal kind of eccentric document. It wasn't part of the canon. Um, I remember I had to ask special permission to do a kind of um, to do a seminar on Marjorie Kemp. Um, The other students didn't want to study her. And, you know, she she was very much an outsider. Um, And since then, that's actually her fortunes have changed in the last 20 or 30 years and she's become much more integral to the canon. Um, and um, she she was previously, I think, seen as, you know, well, she might be interesting in terms of feminism or in terms of psychoanalysis. Whereas now, actually, there's the, 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 those movements themselves have become much more mainstream kinds of hist- historiography. But also... Um, she, she she's she's also the text is also mined for all kinds of other information about heresy or around the history of travel or around um economics or around um communications and that kind of thing so it's an absolute gold mine i think for, for a historian it's it tells us a, a, a huge amount about culture um a few years ago um, just to get to your original question of why i ended up writing this book A few years ago, um, well, 10 years ago, I did a a translation of another medieval text, Mandeville's Book of Marvels and Travels, for Oxford University Press. And I really enjoyed doing that translation. And it gave me a um, a kind of intimate knowledge of a primary source um, that I got a lot out of. And so a couple of years later, Oxford asked me to do another translation of Book of Marjorie Kemp that came out in 2015 um, and working on Marjorie Kemp in this level of detail thinking about the manuscript, thinking about her voice, thinking about the various kind of cruises and controversies in the text um, I felt I, got, I, I I had something else I wanted to say about her and so I ended up writing Marjorie Kemp Mixed Life which is I kind of um it's it's an overview of kemp it's a way in to kemp's book for non-specialists it's i've my ideal reader for the book is someone perhaps an undergraduate student or a lay reader who's interested in finding out more about medieval culture um and i felt that there wasn't a book like this that would speak to lots of the different facets of Marjorie Kemp to a non-specialist audience.
0: Uh, in this very brief introduction, like hundreds of questions popped up, but I'm sure I'll talk. We'll talk about most of them. Uh, but just to start, uh, as you said, this gives us a unique window into medieval England. But can we? First of all, did she write the book herself, or she or she had the book written for her? And the second question I have is that can we take? Should we take her, let's say, her, her autobiography with a pinch of salt? Maybe she's trying to kind of maybe exaggerate her role. What is, I mean, are, are we to be a little bit skeptical of the content of the book?
1: So they're two huge and very important questions. She did not exactly write the book herself in modern terms, in the sense that she did not sit down with a pen and paper and write it down she had several different scribes or amanuenses who wrote it down for her and without going into too much detail the book had a kind of complicated genesis um, she was first told in the 1410s um, or she was first asked in the 1410s so when she was in her 40s she was asked to have a book of her feelings and revelations written down. Um, But she said that God told her to wait. This is one of Kemp's, um, the features of Kemp is that things happen in the world and then things happen in her soul with God, in her mind, um, that are often very different. And then in the early 1430s, so this is 20 or 30 years later, an Englishman who had lived in Germany um, started to write the book down for her, but he died. Another Englishman looked at what had been written down and said that he couldn't make sense of it. It had been written in this Deutsch language, a kind of Deutsch language, and the letters were all badly formed. Um, and so he then put off trying to turn that into a book, and also he said that people were gossiping about Kemp, and there were lots of evil things being said about her. And so another man then looked at it, and he could make no sense of it, but then, then the first priest um, was, um, he went back to it, and he tried wearing glasses, they didn't help, but then by a miracle he could read it. So there's a very complicated genesis to the book, but the point is Kemp used scribes these seem to have been um the people who wrote it down were clerical scribes they were from um they 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 seem to be priests confessors um and literate men but this was not unusual most medieval authorship was in itself collaborative and involved somebody asking someone else to write their words out. we think about say Geoffrey chaucer we don't have an autograph manuscript of Geoffrey Chaucer's poetry. What we have is things written down by scribes and communicated. So there's always an element of, I would call it scribal change. Some people would call it scribal corruption. But um, in a manuscript culture, things change all the time. Texts are dynamic. Texts move. They get changed. What we found with the book of Marjorie Kemp actually is that its fictionality or its unreliability has been very much overstated. There's a lot of historical facts buried in the book of Marjorie Kemp that we can pick out, particular moments where we know she's, that they are historically accurate. What we can't prove or we can't be certain about, obviously, is about her kind of feelings, her visions, her communications with God, her mysticism. That's a question of belief. That's a question of faith. But what we can have much more, um, much more um, certainty about. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book was fill in some of that historical context, which the book Teases us with, or suggests in various kinds of encrypted ways, um, and and but is historically accurate. There's a scholar um, who, for many years, was an archivist in in Kings Susan Maddock, who and Susan Maddock has been doing a lot of work on the names and people and communities. Um, mentioned in the lynn records who are proximate to kemp kemp's family kemp and the people in the guilds who worked with kemp people who were um around that and she finds that that kemp's book fits in very much to these kind of datable, um historic moments and kemp herself one of the um one of the um points I kind of structure the book around is three datable moments in the book. One is Kemp being in Rome in 1414. Another is her being in Leicester in 1417. And another is her being in Lynn, in Kings Lynn, where she grew up, um, where there was a fire in 1421. And these are historically datable moments, um, where they're not fictional this is not something made up these are things that are attested elsewhere in in in, in, in the historical record and so i think the fiction that the hit the, the fictionality of the book um has been perhaps overstated um but it's also not a book of history it's not a chronicle it's not a diary it's it's a book about it's what she calls a book of feelings it's not uh, exactly something which is reliable um so there are, of course, moments um, of unreliability and the stated aim of the book is to make Kemp its central character, its heroine, its miracles are told from her perspective. So there has to be a question of belief. How much do you want to believe in Kemp? Um, you know, One of her first miracles um, takes place in the church in Kingsleyan where a great beam and a stone fall on her from a height and hit her. And she thinks she's going to be killed. She thinks she's going to die. But then suddenly she feels no pain and it's a miracle. But there's only one man there to witness this. And um, he's a local man who surely knows. Um, And so what do we do with that as a category of historical evidence. We have to understand that this is about perspective, it's about belief, it's also about fashioning an image many years later. She's telling a story about something which had happened 20, 30 years previously. So yes, it's unreliable, but it's not fictional.
0: It was a very comprehensive explanation, thank you. Uh, this, this story, I, I'm kind of curious to know what happened to the book after Marjorie Kemp, because it seems to have disappeared. I don't know if there was a version of the manuscript available or it completely disappeared until it was discovered. I think it was in 1930s, if I'm not mistaken. And it it has a very interesting story as well, how the manuscript was uh, discovered. So do do we know what happened to the book in these, let's say, uh, five centuries maybe, between the time she wrote it and until it was discovered?
1: Okay, so this is a really complicated and interesting story, which I will try and tell as um, straightforwardly as possible. So Kemp had her book written down, as I explained, by several scribes. And that manuscript, which is a handwritten text, no longer exists. We don't know where that is. But a copy of that text was made within a few years. And that's the manuscript we now have. That copy was made by a scribe called Richard Salthouse, who I've done a lot of work on. He was a monk at Norwich um, Cathedral, Norwich Priory, not far from Kings Lynn, where Kemp lived. And the we don't know what changes Richard Salthouse made to the original manuscript because it's the only one we've got left. Um, that manuscript was then in the early 16th century in the north of England, in Yorkshire, in a place called Mount Grace, a Carthusian monastery, and was read there by the monks as evidence of spiritual practice. We know from their marginalia, from their comments, that they were interested in what Marjorie Kemp was feeling and how she experienced her mysticism. The manuscript was then probably, but not definitely, back in the south of England, in London, um, around the time of the English Reformation, um, possibly with the London Carthusians, and then we don't hear anything else about it until the 1930s. It the manuscript was owned by a Catholic family, the Butler Bowdens, um, who um, uh, had had been Catholic since the Middle Ages, and um, the suggestion, though we can't be sure about it, is that one of their ancestors, um, who'd been a Carthusian monk in London at the time of the Reformation, had kept the manuscript and had become part of their family property. The finding of the manuscript itself is a great story. Um, in the 1930s at the the Bowdoin's country house in Derbyshire, there were people having a party and they were playing ping pong, table tennis, and somebody stepped on the ball and so the master of the house, Colonel Butler Bowden, um, went to find a new ball in the cupboard and two medieval manuscripts fell out of the cupboard. Um, and people got distracted and they realised, gosh, what's that? They look interesting. And it just so happened that one of the people at that ping pong party was a curator from the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And he called around some of his friends um, contacts and colleagues, and an American medievalist then living in London, Hope Emily Allen, um, eventually saw the manuscript and identified it as the Book of Marjorie Kemp. Now, how did she identify it? In the meantime, the manuscript had been existing, but in, as its own manuscript. But in the uh, in for, around fourteen ninety nine and in fifteen twenty one. Two printed extracts of the book of Marjorie Kemp had been made, um, which took away all, almost all of the biographical material from the book of Marjorie Kemp, and turned it into what it calls a devout anchoress, a devout hermit, um, and made the much more conventional mystical visions. But Hope Emily Allen was able to recognise that the printed the early printed texts were the same as this manuscript which had been discovered in the 1930s, and she identified it. And the announcement of this was made in the Times, the London Times. Um, uh, and it was um, a kind of... Um, a, a sensational discovery at the time. Um, it was it was announced on the 27th of December, 1934, um, as um, the kind of, you know... Um, a a landmark discovery hope emily allen wrote that the book was crammed with highly interesting narratives of real life and it really seized the public imagination at the time Um, and a a modern english translation was then published in the 1930s and then a scholarly translation uh, scholarly edition was made in the 1940s Um, so that's how the book kind of came back into public view Um, The fact that one manuscript survives doesn't mean that Marjorie Kemp was unknown in the Middle Ages. It's not unusual in a country like England, which had a very violent reformation, where owning something like the Book of Marjorie Kemp could be a kind of life or death um, decision. This is the kind of material that the Protestant church outlawed. It's all about pilgrimage, saints, sacraments. um, You know, the it's 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 all about the pre-Reformed religion, and so it's the kind of thing that people would have hidden, people would have destroyed, um, and um, and would have been a very dangerous document to have for lots of the sixteenth century. And so the fact that only one manuscript exists doesn't really tell us how how popular it was. What's more interesting in a way is that there were these two printed editions of it um, in the late 15th and early 16th century. And they suggest that actually Kemp would have been quite well known, but possibly in a very sanitized, very um, uh, conservative kind of way. Lots of the... Um what I think of as the fun stuff, the personal detail, the colorful detail was edited out so um what we don't have there was there's absolutely no evidence that Kemp was ever a saint or a you know she was never a celebrity or a kind of posthumous celebrity um but we but we do know that her name was quite well known in the fourteen thirties, and the fact that the manuscript was made. Well, it is a sign of her what we might call um, celebrity that people were interested in um, what she experienced. The monks at Norwich, the monks at Mount Grace, the people who were reading this in the fifteenth century seem to be interested in the in the kind of spiritual practice that Kemp was undertaking.
0: Uh- we what do we know about her husband so who was her husband what was her relation with her husband like
1: so as I said Kemp was born into a pretty wealthy pretty privileged um, environment we'd call it bourgeois but um, and, and it was very much an urban environment um, in the town of Kings Lynn, which is in the east of England. It's kind of north of Cambridge, um, west of Norwich, but it's in that eastern part of England, which at the time was the wealthiest part of England because of its um, role in the wool trade and its connections to Flanders and northern Germany and the Baltic. Um, and um, Kings Lynn was a port, and her family, her father, and her brothers were very much involved in trade with the Hanseatic League, the the group of ports around the Baltic, from what's now Russia to um, to, to northern Germany, Poland, and um, and, and and Scandinavia. Um, and her husband, so, she, so her, her, her name when she was born was, was Burnham. Um, her husband, John Kemp, was also very, very much from this environment. These were guildsmen. They were well-connected to somewhere like Lubeck and Gdansk, where they carried on their trade. Um, and they were, their, their, their business was in shipping f- um, fish, lumber, furs... So import and export, if you like. Um, And um, John Kemp was from this this, this group of families. They they lived right in the centre of Lynn. If you you have, um, if if your listeners have the chance to go to to Lynn, um, you can see today that the river port on the River Great Ouse um, is very, very close to the centre of the town very close to Kemp's church, St. Margaret's church. I mean, it's literally a kind of two-minute walk. Um, And in between the wharves of the town, which still exist, um, even though the river's partly silted up, um, and the church, there's still the Hanseatic um, Hansard warehouses. These were built slightly later in the 15th century, but they show the town as a busy port town full of people coming and going from around northern Europe um and um it was it and that meant that it was a sophisticated town spiritually um it's where there would have been lots and lots of religiosity and there would have been people coming and going it would have been pilgrims um and yes um and 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 and, and john kemp himself um, his his family um, were 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 local family a local family. Kemp would have grown up knowing him. Um, his father was a merchant, also called John, and um, John Kemp was recorded as a brewer in the thirteen nineties, a very common occupation in wealthy towns. And so was Marjorie Kemp. So they seem to have both worked um, making money through brewing. Um, and, um, and they owned property in the centre of Lynn um, on a street called, which um, then was called Burkhard's Lane. Now it's New Conduit Street. Um, one gets the impression from the book of Marjorie Kemp that Marjorie Kemp thought her husband was slightly beneath her. Um, her father was very successful as an MP, as the mayor, um, as a chamberlain of the town, he held all the roles in local government. Whereas John Kemp and his family never quite got to those heights. And she says at one point, um, he never seemed to have been a likely man to have married her. Um, so she's a bit disappointed in him. Um, we don't quite know what, what, what the, you know, he, he came from a wealthy and well-connected family, but we don't know what the precise dynamics of that comment is. The book does itself have some remarkable moments of intimacy um, describing the contours of medieval marriage. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but at some point she talks about how much she enjoyed having sex with her husband. Um, She talks about their life at home. She also talks about her own mental crisis after the first after the birth of her first child when she's locked up in her chamber and her husband hides the keys to the buttery to the pantry from her um, there's a fascinating and very um, memorable conversation that they have and um, when they're in York together they're walking along a country road in midsummer they've got a bottle of beer and a cake and they this and they have a kind of argument about her wanting to become chaste within their marriage. So her wanting to stop having sex with him, and she, they have a they, they have a a kind of um, negotiation about this, where he effectively threatens to carry on having sex with her against her will um and with it because that's the marriage contract in his terms that they have made the marital debt um and um this is a very you know we, we don't get this kind of piece of evidence from other sources of of a woman describing how she made that kind of negotiation later on um We also have a unique portrait of a marriage in John Kemp's old age. He has an accident, falls down the stairs, bangs his head, and he um, then suffers a kind of dementia. And she tends him, And she talks in an utterly unique, and I find a very moving moment, about um, how, you know, he became like a child. He couldn't control his bowels. She had to keep a fire going for him all the time. And um, but she looked after him, and again we have no other portrait of a woman caring for her husband, of doing that kind of domestic work, and how she felt about it. It upset her. She she was she, she she didn't enjoy doing it. She found it was a trial. But she told herself, you know, I took great pleasure in his body when I was young, and we enjoyed having sex. So now I need to look after his body when he's old and care for him and to have that kind of perspective um and at the same time to think but the fire keeping a fire is so expensive and washing the linen is such a pain you know these are experiences which i think are very common to people in a caring setting today you have mixed feelings about caring for someone you love um, and there we have somebody in the 1420s 1430s describing that experience um so at one level the book of Marjorie Kemp is a portrait of a marriage. It's the portrait of somebody, of a woman, negotiating her way through a marriage in mm. um, in, in 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 great difficulty and in great detail. Um, I should say she actually has two husbands because later on in the book she marries the Godhead, God in his three persons, and... Mm. Um, and she goes to Rome and undertakes a marriage ceremony with God. Um, and that kind of um, parallels and um, supersedes her marriage to John Kemp um, in a very interesting way, which I think will be very surprising to people today <laughs> if you do that. She becomes a kind of virgin and remarries while staying married to John Kemp.
0: Mm. Well, that was actually my next question, which you just answered. I wanted to ask you about that mystical marriage to Godhead, which you you just explained. (laughs) Uh, she, She wasn't always this woman who was into, let's say, affective piety, or she wasn't a very pious woman. So how did this spiritual conversion come about? And when did it happen in her life?
1: She absolutely wasn't. You're quite right. And the book is very frank about that. Mm. She talks in the first stage of the book about how materialistic she was, how jealous of her neighbours she was, how lecherous she was, um, how um, God kept on punishing her for for her pursuit of worldly glory and for wealth. Um, Her spiritual conversion... Um, itself was quite a um, protracted process with several false starts, but the, and, 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 the, and the chronology of the book is not entirely clear. Um, what seems to have happened is that, um, or in the book's telling of it, she had a major crisis after the birth of her first child. She had a very difficult pregnancy and a very difficult delivery of her first child, and she underwent a kind of spiritual, physical crisis and mental crisis. She talks about herself going out of her mind. But she, that that's the Middle English term. Um, but she also, and she started to harm herself. She bit her own hand and gave herself a scar, which she had for the rest of her life. Um, So again, we have this amazing level of personal detail. We can imagine her walking around later in life with a scar on her hand as a symbol or a sign of this crisis. Um, But she, during this spiritual crisis, when she was locked in her chamber in Kings Lynn, she had a vision of Jesus as an incredibly handsome man coming into her bedroom, sitting on the edge of her bed, like in a flash of light, steadying her nerves, steadying her wits and then disappearing again. And so she starts to put her faith in Jesus and in God. And there's a few false starts. At one point she decides she wants to sleep with this good looking man. Um, and she says in church, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Let's, let's do it. And then he says, actually, I was just testing you. Um, and there's a few moments like that where um she's humiliated where she's unable to um become the good christian she wants to be but the real conversion i think on a moment that the kind of pivot or zenith of her conversion in the book is that she's commanded in her soul by jesus or by god to go to Jerusalem and Rome and Santiago de Compostela, the three main pilgrimage sites, and it's in Jerusalem that she um, she receives her first bout of divinely ordained crying. She weeps, she falls down, she collapses, and she asserts her spiritual authority. After that, she's been kind of transformed by her journey. Um, and um the book, therefore, one of the one of the narratives of the book is that she it starts in this very tiny space of her bedroom where she's locked in and she's fettered she 's in chains and it ends up going to the edges of the Christian world to the or, and to the center of the Christian world to Jerusalem to Rome you know so it's from the bedroom to the cosmos um and that's how her and that tracks her spiritual conversion. Um, is her conversion complete? Yes, and no, she retains one foot in the urban world of the merchants of King's Lynn. The last record we have of her life in the 1430s is that she is um elevated to being a member of the guild of the holy trinity in Lin, this town's most prestigious guild that's not a very holy occupation that's not you know a record of her becoming a hermit or becoming a saint or something this is that she, this shows that she's still involved in the merchant class and in the kind of um world of mercantile glory that she says she's renounced um And, yeah, she comes back home. The book is also structured around that kind of starting in her bedroom, going out to the the sites of Christendom and then coming back home. Um, And she comes back changed. That's the ideal of a pilgrimage is that you go out as one thing and you come back as another. And she does come back changed. So, um, yeah, what was your original question? Um, How did her conversion happen? It seems to be a combination of visionary, experience, illness. Illness in the Middle Ages is often a moment of opportunity. It's often a moment to change yourself to, or to be changed, to undergo a significant change. And, and experience, she cuts herself off from her life and then comes back to it and comes back to it differently.
0: Uh, you talked a little bit about his... Uh let's say, spiritual conversion. And uh, on page 132, uh, you write that, quote, yeah. Kemp's religious practice has been described as a very material mysticism. What, what is material mysticism? Because the, the role of, let's say, images and icons are very important uh, in her biography.
1: Yeah. Um, so that's a phrase um, from a great article by a scholar called Sarah Beckwith. Um, and she coined the the, the, the the kind of the term the, the material mysticism, very material mysticism for Kemp. And what it means, as I, I understand it in terms of Kemp, is that things, objects, stuff, shopping, um, what money can buy, occupies an incredibly powerful role. In her spirituality, so this is not spirituality which takes place in a in an abstract disembodied way. This is spirituality which takes place through objects, through stuff, um, and so precious objects play a huge role for Kemp and for the people she interacts with, and this would be consonant with how we might think about, you know, the. Uh, um a a relic or a rosary or an icon a statue of a saint something where holiness resides in the physicality of that thing not because it's um uh spiritual but because it is material so she for example um she 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 thinks a lot about um, jewelry, food, relics, souvenirs, um, a holy doll, um, all kinds of things like that. So this, th- and, and she often attaches both a financial and a spiritual value to these to these things. Um, she she sees a paeta, an image of the morning. Uh, the grieving virgin with 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 Christ in um, Norwich, and describes through that how she is ravished into um, the biblical narrative, and often material artifacts are ways into feeling something religious. Um, yeah, sorry, and 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 then again, she she she, she has this kind of really um, important moment when she's in Italy. Where she sees some women who are also pilgrims tending a little holy doll, a fair, a, a, a little image of Jesus, and they're, they're and they and they're dressing him and they're worshiping, worshiping him. And again, we know this is a historically attested fashion in northern Italy and southern Germany at the time. Um, and she she says, you know, th- th- this. They, they were treating the doll like it was Jesus, and that's not heretical. That's not vulgar. That's actually very, very fashionable and spiritual. Um, she she has a um, she herself when she's in Jerusalem, she buys a walking stick, which is a kind of copy of Moses's rod, and she says that she wouldn't have lost it for ten shillings, um, which is you know she's putting us. A financial value on the spiritual object and that's very kempian so that's the material mysticism and I think you can say that 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 reflects um, the, the mentality of you know a merchant a merchant um, capitalist um, but, but it also is very much in keeping with 15th century religion, 15th century Christianity which um, is It has this culture of kind of prey and display of um, financial, of of, of luxurious um, ornamented um, physicality where holiness resides in objects, um, in very familiar objects, and they are a gateway to the spiritual.
0: And uh, well, when I was reading that chapter, one thing that was really fascinating to me was the the, 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 the role of emotions, let's say the power of emotions, and you have a whole chapter, chapter six on feelings. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago I started to read more about the history of emotions and contemporary theories of affect and emotions, and I was surprised, I read somewhere that the, the whole discipline started with, uh, with medieval studies. And, to, and you, you write in the book that Marjorie Kemp's book is a reflection of cultural and also social history of emotions, uh, emotions like pain or shame. Can you expand on that, please?
1: Yeah. And actually, it's really, I'm really glad that you you you, you reminded me because I'd forgotten that I called that chapter feelings rather than an emotion. Yeah. I slightly prefer the word feeling because for Marjorie Kemp because it's a Middle English word, whereas emotion um, is is a slightly more modern word Mm. which emotion has within it um a sense of um perhaps a more scientific set of definitions whereas feelings um are um yeah now um more um hard to pin down perhaps yeah so the, the history of emotions um which It's been one of the most exciting and important developments in in medieval studies and in in cultural history more generally in the last 10-15 years Um, essentially says that emotions are not human are not stable human experiences throughout time but emotions themselves are historically bounded, historically contextualised and are therefore they might be experienced differently so a uh, feeling like sadness or joy might be experienced differently but they're certainly mediated and expressed differently in time so I start with the example of joy joy in the middle ages doesn't just mean happiness or gladness or relief or victory or other ways we might use joy. Joy is a very very specific emotion Um, and it usually means something um, when you are at the very pinnacle of um, of um, how would you say a kind of um, pinnacle of feeling which often involves being united with God. So Kemp feels joy on first seeing Jerusalem. That is the moment of union of a really high kind of expression and feeling. And she experiences so much joy that she falls off her donkey, um, or she nearly falls off her donkey and has to be helped by two other pilgrims. Um, And she experiences this joy at a place called Mount Joy just outside outside Jerusalem. And Mount Joy was a place where one went to experience this emotion. So it had a whole um, cultural script, as historians of emotions might call it, which was resided in a place, resided in a set of rituals, resided in a Christian understanding of the landscape, in a Christian understanding of the vista, which all became connected with this emotion of joy. Kemp is, she's full of feelings. She's full of what she calls stirrings and feelings, full of emotions. Um, And so the book is incredibly useful. Um, And actually one of the um, quite early work in the history of emotions by Barbara Rosenwein um, used Kemp's book as one of its key sources in making kind of um, graphs and charts of the different terms that Kemp uses for various kinds of emotions. So when you're when she says she's sad, or when she says she's glad, or when she says she's um, I, you know full of some kind of emotion, um, what are the set rose and wine looks, and what are the settings and the moments and the kind of places? So history of emotions is a very good way of um, thinking about the um, the rituals, the scripts, the um kinds of moments that people feel things or say they feel things whether they actually felt them or not that i'm not interested um it's what they say they they felt
0: and i must add that uh, throughout the book you have included several pictures for the listeners so it's uh it's 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 i I strongly recommend that they pick up the book and read it because there are a lot of pictures in there you're talking about mount joy so you put a contemporary picture of mount joy in the book but it's just fascinating that you are transported like four or five hundred years ago uh, to, 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 to maybe vicariously try to experience that feeling. But of course, it's an impossible thing for, for me, at well, least.
1: I mean, it, it is an impossible thing. And I'm glad you, you know, uh, one of the, I think the, 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 the publishers made a beautiful job of the book. And it's, very, it's a very mm. um, nice book to handle. And there's lots of photos in there, lots of them are mine um, from my travels. <laughs> Um, and um, and I do want the reader to sometimes um, yeah to exactly what you just said to put themselves in that place and to kind of feel not estrangement from the Middle Ages or from Marjorie Kemp but actually to think some of these places are still very resonant or are resonant in different ways um, or are um, perhaps, um places that are good to think through in terms of holiness or emotion or spirituality and that kind of thing. Um so yeah, um and I had a great time um kind of sometimes walking in the footsteps of Marjorie Kemp and thinking you know when she's in the she, she's she went to Mount Quarantine or Jebel Karantul, which is near Jericho in the West Bank in Palestine. Um and she talks about how hot it was and how, and how difficult it was climbing this mountain. And I also went there, and, and it was, I think, June or July. It was incredibly hot, and the mountain is very, very steep, and I became Marjorie Kemp for the morning. Um, and, you know, I thought about this. There is a kind of physical... Um, uh, she's recording a very human physical reaction to the landscape, which was also tied into why that landscape was like that you are you're experiencing the quarantine that Jesus experienced the 40 days and 40 nights and the temptation in the desert um, that um, to, you're supposed to suffer like Jesus in walking up that hill and the heat the thirst the it's this incredibly barren landscape in the desert is all um, kind of in a sensory way, describe uh, uh, um, develop to make you feel that you're in this kind of extreme uh, place? Mm.
0: Um, I have a number of questions, but I'll skip them. I'll get to the most important one. And I think before we started recording the interview, I told you that I did a part of my PhD thesis on female travels in the romantic literature in the 17th and 18th century. And then I had this roommate who told me look, uh, there were women, it's not a big thing, there were women who were traveling alone in the Middle Ages. And so like, how come? Is there, like, is there anybody famous there? And it was the first time that I heard the name Marjorie Kemp, which was, I guess, about uh, six, seven, seven years ago. And he introduced this book of Marjorie Kemp to me. So let's talk about her travels. She, she, it was a huge task, I guess, for a female to travel alone in the Middle Ages, and she I'm going to ask a very broad question, so just feel free to talk about it. What was it like for a woman to travel alone? And does she talk about the vicissitudes and troubles she had? <clears throat> How did uh, the people she met treat her? And what were the most important destinations that she went to? So
1: she was a um, a very indefatigable, brave, and determined traveler, Um, and travel is one of the main themes and subjects of the book itself. Um, She traveled throughout England um, to various saints, shrines and holy places, and also to visit um, various bishops and authorities in Canterbury and London and elsewhere. She also then travelled throughout the main sites of Christendom, Jerusalem, Rome, Santiago de Compostela, um, and then um, pilgrimage sites in northern Germany. So these these were all places of pilgrimage, and they were all spiritually valuable. One got an indulgence there, which reduced um, your time in purgatory. Um, And and it's also where she... um, I think was exposed to lots of different religious and cultural influences. You asked me how unusual it was for a woman like her and how difficult it was. Um, pilgrimage was the most common way to travel in the middle ages. And most people would have undertaken some kind of pilgrimage, but it might be just to the next village or to the local town. That can be a pilgrimage. Not Not as many people as Kemp did the three great pilgrimages to Jerusalem, Rome and Santiago, but it wasn't unique for a woman to travel like she did. And we know that because there are documents from the English pilgrim's hospice in Rome from the 1470s that show who was being admitted to that hospice. That's one of the places Kemp stays. Um, And actually in that group about one-sixth or one-fifth of the pilgrims are female. They are sometimes traveling alone, sometimes traveling as widows, sometimes they're traveling with their sisters and um, or their daughters, sometimes they're traveling with their husbands, sometimes they're traveling in groups. Now Kemp um didn't exactly travel alone. She set off alone and she joined a group of pilgrims, which is what which was the normal way to travel at the port one would find a boat and one would attach oneself to a group of pilgrims and then take established routes through Europe. Um, she went to Constance in the south of Germany on her way to Venice, um, which then on the way to Jerusalem. Now, the difference with Kemp is that her group, um, she, she, she fell out with her, her companions. Um, and one of the vicissitudes of travel was that you were stuck with a group of random people, and you didn't we really have much choice over that. And so, your comp- travel companions could be very difficult. They they repeatedly in her book kemp is told that people don't want to travel with her. They don't want her constant talking about God. They don't want her crying. They um that they think she brings them bad luck, that she thinks that she's embarrassing them, that she's bringing shame on them. So traveling is not easy for her. At the same time, and that's very memorable, that moment, but at the same time, she is able to make friends. And it's clear that medieval Europe was crisscrossed with these established routes of people, undertaking long journeys, supported by an infrastructure of hospices, and guides and people um who were offering services to travelers taverns inns that kind of thing um and she does make friends on her on her way as well as enemies um and um the dangers she talks about are about robbers about being sexually assaulted um about um people her other companions um Stealing from her, and about the weather, um, about people, be, you know, about, about boats and being giving uh, there being bad crossings with the weather, about seasickness. So there's a lot of danger with travel at this point. Um, a pilgrim who went to Jerusalem was probably realistically thinking that they were going to die during the journey they did not necessarily expect to come back so most medieval travelers would make a last will and testament before they went they would make sure all their affairs were in order because they would not expect necessarily to come back the journey was extremely long extremely difficult and there were a lot of different perils and it was physically demanding kemp seems to have survived that journey she was she was tough
0: that, that that reminds me, I, I come from a Muslim background and uh, in Islam, if you go on a pilgrimage, you have to kind of finalize your will before going on a pilgrimage, even in modern times, which is not a risky thing anymore. But I guess it's something that comes from the past as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's a double-edged thing in medieval Christianity because actually to die in Jerusalem is a better place to die, You're, you know, it's, to be buried in Jerusalem, it's a, an incredible honour, um, and to die in holy land, to die in holy soil is a great honour. Um, and, but yeah, I think the, the, that's the positive spin on it. <laughs> lots of pilgrims, we have records of lots of pilgrims dying, you know, on the boat in Greece or in, um, in Egypt, and they are, their bodies are, you know, there's a kind of makeshift burial for them or they're buried at sea um, and they never um, come home. Um, yeah, but it's, 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 it's dangerous. It's a dangerous um, undertaking.
0: There are uh, two characters that you mentioned in the book. I want to know how uh, Marjorie Kent was, re- not related, how was, how was she influenced by them? Or did she ever meet them? For, one of them is Julian of Norwich. Yeah, and the other one is Saint Bridget of Sweden. There are two important people that you talk about in the book.
1: Yeah, so Julian is um, Julian. For those of your listeners who aren't aware of her, um, it, Julian was a woman, even though she's called Julian, <laughs> um, and um, she was a a hermit, an anchoress um, in Norwich, um, who in her lifetime she lived at the same time well she was like older than Kemp but she lived around the same time as Kemp and in her lifetime she um, became a well-known spiritual authority somebody you um, people would go to they would leave money to her in their wills they would go and um, talk to her and Kemp visited Julian in Norwich in 1413 and she wanted to know whether the visions she was having were from God or from the devil, whether they were illusions or, you know, whether they were good or bad um, visions. Um, and um, she, um, she spent what she describes as many days with Julian in contemplation, the two of them having um, conversation Um and um, it seems that Kemp looked up to Julian as a kind of authority, as a, as a, but she didn't know that she was a writer. She didn't think about her as a writer. Julian did write down her revelations of divine, divine love. But Kemp seems to think of her as more like a female confessor or um, counsellor. Um, and she's one of several hermits and recluses that Kemp consults but Julian is the only woman that Kemp consults like this so we know that she met her um, and she seems to have got um, support and encouragement from Julian she seems to have been kind of encouraged to carry on with her spiritual spiritual journey Um, the other woman who is a major kind of friend for Kemp and authority is St. Bridget of Sweden but Kemp did not meet her um, However, Kemp had clearly um, read or been read um, Bridget's work, Bridget's revelations. Kemp based lots of her life on Bridget. Bridget, was, um, Bridget had died in 1373, um, around the time that Kemp was born. Um, and Bridget was a, a Swedish, um, Swedish aristocrat who had many children, had, she was married, she had visions, her, she went to Rome and Jerusalem and Santiago. Her life has a very similar template to Kemp's. Um, and, but she became a holy authority. And her cult was very, very popular in England when Kemp was a young and middle-aged woman. Um, we know that one of Kemp's confessors, a man called Alan of Lynn, um, was one of the people who wrote indexes and copies of Bridget's Revelations in England. And at in Rome, Kemp went to the house of St. Bridget and met people who had known Bridget in her lifetime. Um, and so, and, and she's seeking out um, what we'd call Bridgetine communities in England and in Italy. Um, Bridget, Bridget um, was famous for, Very similar kinds of revelations to the ones that Kemp has. Visions of the incarnate Jesus, conversations with the Virgin Mary, a lot of domesticity and affective piety. Um, And and at one point in one of her visions, God says to Marjorie Kemp, even St. Bridget never saw me like this. He has, she has a vision of God as a flickering, the wings of a flickering dove, um, flickering wings of a dove. And God says, "Even Saint Bridget never saw me." So she even gets one over on Saint Bridget um, and goes further than Saint Bridget. Um, but she's she she's very much models her life on Saint Bridget, um, and um, that so she's a kind of role model, if you like, mm. um, rather than someone she she met in person.
0: Uh, so marjorie camp she was very spiritual she t- always talked about god she was a very she came from a very well-connected family uh, did she ever get into trouble with church was she ever accused of being a heretic
1: yeah so this is a i read great... somewhere
0: that she, she she was wearing like white dress yeah. which she wasn't supposed to
1: <laughs> so she she was living in england at a time of great um spiritual religious controversy um, in the late 14th century john wickliffe an oxford scholar had developed what people then called the wicklifite heresy wicklifitism um, which um questioned lots of the foundations of medieval catholicism um, it questioned the right of Um, priests to hold worldly office Um, it questioned the efficacy of pilgrimage to relics and shrines Um, it questioned the real presence of Jesus' body and blood in the sacrament of the Eucharist Um, and it inaugurated a much more congregational kind of religion which would something like we would now call Protestantism, which was much more about the word of the Bible and the common understanding of that word. Wycliffe, Wycliffe and the Wycliffeites were very interested in translating the Bible into English so people could understand it. And the understanding of the Bible was taken out of the hands of the clerics and given to the people, to the congregation. And this led to a group which was called, they were called the Lollards, in medieval England and they have a parallel in Bohemia and Germany with the Hussites and later with Lutherans. Um, um, And Lollard is not a word we should probably use because it was an insult Um, but they were Wycliffeite heretics and in the early 15th century in Kemp's time in the time of Henry IV and Henry V this leads to an atmosphere of great the suppression of the Lollards, of heresy, the detection of heresy. Um, This is when Lollards' heretics start being burnt um, because of their beliefs. And everyone is suspected of being a Lollard. It becomes a kind of panic and this atmosphere of great surveillance. So you think about kind of the McCarthyite, witch hunts in America in the 1950s is kind of similar thing that people are being suspected for very small um nebulous reasons of heresy um and Kemp is definitely engaged in this um moment she is not a heretic there's no question of that she she believes in pilgrimage she believes in confession she believes in the Eucharist she um believes in the saints there's no question that but anybody who was um, in any way different or unorthodox could easily be um, labeled a heretic when uh, very early on in the book she's in lambeth near london at the archbishop of canterbury's london residence And a woman comes up to her and says, you should be burnt like a heretic. Um, And this is a very kind of shocking moment. Um, But we do need to remember this is a world in which heretics were being burnt in London at Smithfield. Um, And the very first person to be burnt there as a heretic was somebody from Kemp's own church in Lynn, a man called William Sautry. Um, And she would have known him. And so the burning of, like, getting your religion right could be, um, it was a question of keeping safe. Getting it wrong, you could find yourself being burnt. She's interrogated later on by the Duke of Bedford's men. Um, Duke of Bedford um, was um, in charge of, um, was one of the people in charge of, of, of asserting orthodoxy and asserting conventional religion. Um, and she's also accused in Leicester um, of, of heresy. Um, she's very talented at answering safely, but she it's clearly something which is um, in the air. Whether Kemp had previously, when she was a young woman, flirted with heresy that's that's not something we know about. Um, there's a long section of the 1420s where the book is very quiet. Um, and this is when there was a period of intense scrutiny of female heretics in Norwich, in Norfolk. And so th- and this might just be a kind of careful silence. And Kemp doesn't mention Joan of Arc either. Um, and this, the, the prosecution of Joan of Arc or something that happened in Kemp's day um, by the Duke of Bedford, um, who had previously been um, pursuing Kemp. So there's some silences around heresy, which might respect be kind of um, respectful or judicious kinds of silences.
0: And uh, uh, I've taken a lot of your time, so I'll just bring it to an end with a final question, <laughs> uh, which has two parts. So what do we know about Kemp's final days? Do we know where she's buried now or not? And the other question is that, what is the significance of the book to us today? Yeah.
1: Um, So Kemp in the 1430s seems to have spent this time writing her book. By this point, she was in her sixties, which was old for somebody at that time. And she, um, she um, also undertook a very difficult journey from the east of England to what's now Gdansk, Danzig in northern Poland, where her son had been living and his daughter was from, and it was to return her and her granddaughter to Gdansk. During that journey, their ship was blown off course to Norway and she came back over land via Vilsnack, which was a pilgrimage site, and Aachen um, and then to Calais. And that journey is very difficult. Kemp talks in a lot of detail about how old she was, how hard it was for her to make the journey. And it's a very um, uh, interesting portrait of an older medieval woman moving through the world Um, when she returns to England something really embarrassing happens which is she goes to a dinner party in London and she hears people talking about a hypocritical woman from King's Lynn and it's her they're talking about and she's become a kind of proverb she's become a byword for hypocrisy and she goes back to Lynn tells uh, and, and she she seems by that point to have kind of become unashamed she's become um she tells people that they are sinners they're hypocrites that they are they um her spirituality is she's sure of her spirituality and she goes back to them. um as i said earlier the last record we have of her is of adjoining the the guild of the holy trinity um and the, and that's in 1439. And then she disappears from the historical record. And the book of Marjorie Kemp itself finishes with her prayers in her voice. And that's actually where we get the sense of Kemp's own voice. Um, but God says to her in the book, in this church, St. Margaret's in Lynn, which you could still go to, in this church, you've suffered much shame and reproof for the gifts I gave you. And in this church... I shall be worshipped through you, which is a way of suggesting that she'll become a kind of saint or become a um, holy celebrity. And as far as we know, that never happened. But it does suggest that she was buried there. Her grave isn't there any longer. There are medieval graves still there, but her grave is no longer there. Um, And we don't know where her body is. Um, So that's still, there's still possibly records. There's archaeology yet to be done. There's, archives yet to be gone through there's a lot about her life and the people around her that we don't yet know we don't know what happened to her children other than the oldest one who died um, and so Kemp Kemp's book and Kemp herself I often think of it as kind of like a kind of shooting star blazing and then disappearing um, she she can she she disappears suddenly from a historical record. Um, and she was very, you know, she was very good at being controversial at making a noise. And then suddenly she goes quiet. The book today, I think is unbelievably important. Um, it's, as I said at the beginning, it's unique. Um, it gives us a unique portrait of a person's life and of a particular time that would within a hundred years be it would disappear so within a hundred years of kemp's death the protestant reformation had started and the places the monuments the culture the monasteries that she that were so familiar to her were 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 being erased were being ruined were being demolished were being hidden so it's a very Un- unique and important document for that but i also think it can be read in all kinds of changing contemporary ways we've talked here about the history of emotions um, it's been read in terms of queer theory it's been ter- read in terms of feminism it's been read in terms of psychoanalysis it's been read in terms of the history of medicine um so it's a great document for thinking about um how we actually approach the past um, it's a, and it 's such a rich document for that, um, that I think there'll be other ways that you know will keep on existing in the future as a as a proof text of how we approach um historical sources it 's incredibly full, and I think one of the testaments to that is you know i 've been reading this the book of Marrie Kemp for th- over thirty years, and I keep on coming back to it and seeing bits that i 'd forgotten about or i 'd never noticed the first time and I could actually I could write an article about that. I could that no one's ever thought about that. And it's so in that sense, it has the the status of a great um, cultural document that keeps on asking questions rather than answering them.
0: And as you mentioned, it's uh, one of the very few books that can give us uh, <clears> that's <throat> a unique window into the life of uh, people in med- uh, medieval England uh, Professor Anthony Bell, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts on New Books Network.
1: That's my pleasure. Thank you.